Welcome. Glad you are here today. <clears throat> I hope you enjoy springtime in the Rockies. I don't know that there's any better place to be this time of year. Isn't it awesome to call Colorado home? Man, it's a blessing. Well, two young Navy cadets had indulged in every sinful pleasure possible of the city that they had had a layover in. In the morning, as they made their way back to the ship, one turned to the other and said, I dare you to go into that cathedral across the street and confess everything you did last night to the priest in the confessional. I'll bet you, I'll bet you a hundred bucks you can't do it. Well, without much hesitation, the first man said to him, you're on. So he sauntered into the church and then into the confessional and walked in and said to the priest, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And then in graphic detail, he told the priest about every escapade of the night before. Well, the priest, being very perceptive, was able to discern the insincerity of the young sailor, so he said, Son, your penance will be to walk to the front of this building where there is a life-size statue of Jesus dying on the cross, and I want you to look into the suffering face of the Savior, and I want you to say, Jesus, all this you did for me, and I couldn't care less. The young man said, yes, Father. And then he walked out of the confessional booth, and he started laughing as he told his buddy all about what had just happened. And he said, all right, so pay up. Show me the money. And the buddy said, no, no, not yet. You've got to complete the deal and pay the penance. And he said, oh, fine, whatever, I can do that. So he went over and stood in front of the cross. He looked up and said, Jesus, all this you did for me, and I... I, he couldn't finish the sentence. Just then the teachings of his childhood began to sweep over him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And no greater, no greater love has won than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His buddy punched him in the arm and he said, come on, what are you waiting for? Let's go. So he looked at his buddy, and he looked back up at the statue of Jesus, <clears throat> and he said, okay, Lord Jesus, all this you did for me, and I, uh, I, but he couldn't finish, and instead he burst into tears. He fell to his knees in repentance. You see, there's an awesome power of the cross. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all people to myself, there is a mysterious magnetism that attracts us to the cross. It's, it is there that sinners are convicted and the arrogant are humbled and skeptics are convinced, at least some of the time. Now, Scripture does tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Many people today do think the message of the cross is foolish, and, and they can indeed stand in front of the cross unmoved, untouched, indifferent. But to those of us who know the truth and do our best to live by the truth, we know it is at the cross that our sins are forgiven and that our attitudes are transformed and that we find 
the hope of eternal life. That's why, though, for the next several weeks as we approach Easter, it's just around the corner next month, that we want each of you to stand beneath the cross and see Jesus dying for you. We're going to look at the cross from several perspectives of different people who were literally, literally there during the first century, and I hope that as we do, you'll see the cross in a fresh and new light, and I hope that you'll conclude, yes, this man Jesus did indeed die for me to pave my way to have forgiveness. So first of all, I want us to look at the soldiers who were unmoved by the cross, the, um, the message pertaining to their stories contained in, in several of the Gospels. But let's read it from John chapter 19. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John 19. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. But again, the soldiers who were there were unmoved by the cross. Here's how the Bible describes it. When, they, when, the, <clears throat> when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Prophecy from the Old Testament. So this is what the soldiers did. Now, pause and think about that scene. Picture that scene in your mind with me. These soldiers were witnessing the most important event in history, and yet they were missing it. It was going right over them. They were touching the Son of God and yet not being touched by Him. And the reasons these soldiers were unaffected, <clears throat> unaffected by the cross are still in place for many of us today. Reasons that they were indifferent and unfazed. And I think we need to look at and consider their perspective so as to avoid what they experienced. The first hurdle for these soldiers was, if you're filling in the blanks, it's this. It was familiarity. Familiarity with the cross. You see, the cross was commonplace for them. A fixture in their life. Gary Lee Davis is the name of a convicted murderer and rapist, and he was executed by the state of Colorado in 1997. He is the only person to date to have been subject to the death penalty in Colorado since that point, over 20 years ago. See, the death penalty is very rare today. It makes headlines. It's a big deal. Whereas in the days of these soldiers that were there when Jesus was crucified, crucifixion was commonplace. In his book, simply titled Crucifixion, a man named Martin Hingle writes this. He says, during Titus's siege of Jerusalem, up to 500 people a day were whipped, tortured, and crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem in hopes that the gruesome sight would move the besieged people inside the city to surrender. Think about that. 500 people a day. And that's just at one location where crucifixion happened, one city. It was commonplace. 
Tradition holds that when Jesus was a teenager, there was a Jewish rebellion against Rome near the town where he lived. And the history lesson tells us that Rome quickly crushed the rebellion so as to ensure it didn't happen again. But here's what they did. They, listen to this, they crucified an Israelite every 30 feet for approximately a 10-mile stretch. That's over 1,600 people in just that one season. That not only had to leave an indelible impression on all the Jewish people who saw it, as was intended, but it, I, I think it had to desensitize those soldiers. I mean, how could you go through that, do that that many times over and over and not kind of become calloused to it? These soldiers had probably performed so many of these crucifixions that it had become methodical for them, routine. Yes, it was nasty business, they might tell you, but it's, it's just our job. It's what we do. My mother was a paramedic and spent a lot of time in ambulances rushing to the scene of accidents when I was a kid. I remember her coming home often and talking about some of what she saw. Um, She sometimes held people's hands as they died. She other times helped people fight and hold on to life and uh, helped them get what they needed in terms of help. It was a bloody and difficult job, though. And I remember one particular evening when I was a high school student I was at home when she came home, and she came in after an especially difficult car wreck and was really kind of being bothered by it more than she had been in other moments in the past. And she needed to talk. Dad wasn't home, and so I I think I was a junior in high school. We talked about it for a while. A young man had died as she was desperately working on him as uh, they were speeding to the hospital with her in the back um, and another paramedic working on him. And he had been crying and screaming that he wasn't ready to die. And she said, oh, he just kept saying, lady, please don't let me die. Lady, please don't let me die. And um, I remember mom just really struggling to process all that and her telling me that while she loved her job and loved helping people, it was moments like that when she lost him that made her go, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And uh, she contemplated quitting and so was talking about that. And she said, you know, at one point, she goes, I guess maybe I just need to really take John's advice. John was her supervisor, boss, friend. And um, she recounted to me that he had said, you know, Sheila, you're only going to be able to live with this job if you learn to just remember that it is just a job. Otherwise, you'll end up uh, uh, frustrated and eventually wanting to quit. Sheila, you got to remember, we do our best, but at the end of it all, at the end of the day, we wash our hands, and we go home, and we eat dinner, and we try to just not think about what happened during the day. That's what you have to learn to do. Well, that was easier said than done for mom. But these soldiers that we're talking about had learned to do just that. They'd learned to live with it. They had heard the screams. They had heard and seen the grimaces. They, they had listened to the pitiful pleas for mercy and learned how to tune them out. They knew what to expect. They knew that as the victim hung there by those nails, bleeding and gasping and wincing and crying and all of that, they knew how it would work, that eventually the whimpers would become softer and that the breathing would become more spasmodic and that eventually life would ebb away and they would die. 
And then they, the soldiers, would go home, wash their hands, eat dinner, move on. I fear that the cross today has become so familiar for many of us in various ways that it has also lost the impact that God wants it to have in our lives. I mean, think about it. We see crosses everywhere, on the top of church buildings, inside church buildings, um, uh, around almost every other necklace you see. I s- talked to several of you walking in today with necklaces with crosses, and, and they're fun. That's great. But just think of how familiar the cross becomes for all of us. On T-shirts or other designer clothing, Everywhere we look, tombstones. I mean, we have the red cross, the white cross, the blue cross. We even have the green cross now, right? (laughs) Crosses are everywhere. And I don't know about you, but it seems strange to me that the ancient instrument of execution, I mean, we're talking about the modern equivalent or the ancient equivalent of the electric chair, that it's become so popular I mean, can you imagine somebody walking around with a necklace with a little electric chair hanging off of it? Who would do that? And yet, the cross was even worse. It was an instrument of greater torture, an instrument of death. And yet, it is the centerpiece of the good news, the most highly recognized symbol of the Christian faith. But I don't think we really stop often enough to ponder what really happened there. Think about it. Familiarity does not always breed intimacy. There's a big difference between displaying the cross and being transformed by the cross. The hugely successful entertainer Madonna, I would guess everybody knows that name. She started getting popular way back when I was in high school. She's been around a long time. Anyway, she often wears a cross around her neck. And she was asked one time why. And she said, and I quote, crosses are in. I think a cross is sexy. There's a naked man hanging on it. I cringe for her, people like that. The law of familiarity does not breed intimacy. In fact, the law of familiarity is about this. It reads like this. No matter how valuable something is, given enough time, everything will become taken for granted. And it is very possible that those of us who attend church regularly can become so familiar with the cross that we are no longer moved by it. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you sang songs like the old rugged cross, and there are many others like that, old hymns that that you might not have sung for years, but you could probably still recite them word for word if you grew up in a church like that because of familiarity with that song. Or maybe you went to Christian school or memorized scriptures down in Sunday school at a church like this, and, and you can still hear the words, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And yet those words barely register as relevant to you. And just almost in one ear and out the other on certain Sundays or moments. Last year we showed the movie uh, on Good Friday, The Passion of the Christ. Um, 
And by the way, this year we're going to do something really amazing. You'll hear more about it over the next couple of weeks. I hope you can all be here that Friday. Um, But let me ask you, whether it be last year on Good Friday or at some other point in your past, how many of you have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ? Okay, that looks like a pretty big majority of you. Um, Well, let me ask you, those of you who just raised your hands, how many of you, like me, had a hard time even knowing what to say or having a hard time even speaking after you first saw it that first time? Yeah, me too. And how many of you find yourself today in certain moments wondering why the cross doesn't always move you to that same degree? Yeah, me too. If so, maybe you and me, we need to pause and ask the Lord to reveal to us whether or not we might be more like the calloused soldiers than we might first want to admit. And ask the Lord to help us see the cross of Jesus the way God wants us to see it. A second hurdle that these soldiers were dealing with was this. It was prejudice against the Jewish people. Prejudice against the Jewish people. The Romans generally hated the Jews, and the feeling was mutual. I mean, we can understand that. Nobody likes to be oppressed or beaten down. I mean, we we all know how people, uh, you know, struggle with that kind of concept. Millions of people today in Iraq and other countries hate the United States because they think we've somehow oppressed them. So we understand that tendency in humans. Now, I've been living in Colorado now for over 20, almost 26 years, over half my life, and I grew up mostly, though, in Kansas, uh, middle school, high school, college, went to Manhattan Christian College and Kansas State University, both in Manhattan, Kansas, and, uh, and therefore, as far as sports go, I, I'm a big Kansas State Wildcat fan, um, but I also lived seven years of my life, in two different stints, um, two different time periods in Oklahoma, seasons of my life that I refer to as the dark ages of my past, but... Um, <laughs> But I, I actually have lots of good friends from Oklahoma, some of which are here today. Others are still in bondage living there, but um, that's all right. But, but uh, now, year after year, the Oklahoma University Sooners pretty much every year trounce my Kansas State Wildcats in football. I mean, just humiliate us year after year after year. And, um, and I dread my phone ringing at the end of each of those games because I know it's going to be one of my friends or family members that live there or have lived there singing that, that horrific, horrible song. If you know it, you know what I mean. But that, boomer sooner, boomer sooner, boomer sooner, boomer sooner, boomer sooner. It just goes on and on and on. It's so repetitive and obnoxious. Probably the worst song in the history of music. But, but, but my point is this. Nobody likes to be defeated. Nobody likes to be, you know, oppressed or beaten down by somebody else. And that's just a tiny little example of such things. But think about these Jewish people. I mean, this is a proud, independent group of people who were now oppressed and defeated and beaten down in a, in a literal and much more intense way, of course, by these Romans who ruled over them. They hated it. They hated them. So, I mean, some Jewish zealots even carried knives under their cloaks so that if the opportunity presented itself, maybe they were in a crowd and and a Roman soldier or even group of soldiers sometimes would walk by. If they could, without being seen, they would would stab and injure that soldier, maybe even kill him. 
without being detected in the, in the hustle and bustle of the crowd. Or, or if they could find a Roman soldier off by himself, maybe in an alley, they would jump him and kill him because they hated these Romans who oppressed them. And again, the feeling was mutual. I mean, the Roman soldiers likewise hated the Jews because of stuff like this and other things. Uh, they hated being stationed in Palestine. It had to be the least favorite station or post for virtually any Roman soldier. They hated these people. So, when a Roman commander said to his group of soldiers, hey, we have a Jewish revolutionary that we want you to torture and hang on a cross, sure, sign me up. They relished in such op opportunities. That's why they clubbed Jesus with their fists, as the Bible records. They spit on him. They mocked him with words and with a robe and with a crown of thorns. It never even crossed their mind that this low-life Jew might actually be deity. Not even possible. Never even crossed their mind because they were so prejudiced against the people of God. Now, maybe you're not moved by the cross because you're prejudiced against the people of Christ. One man once said, I'll never go back to church again. I got a divorce years ago, and the church, you know, the church would not remarry me. And then guess what? I heard years later that that pastor that turned me away and would not marry me again actually got arrested for abusing children. Ugh. I hate Christian people. I personally have a good friend who struggles to believe in Jesus, doesn't come to church for a number of reasons. For one reason, um, one of the main reasons is because he and his wife lost two baby, twin babies uh, late in pregnancy due to a complication. Anyway, they both died. And shortly after losing both of their babies, um, Another friend, a Christian friend, who had a little child, um, they were together, and the child, without mom and dad being in the room and being able to filter or cover his mouth, shut him up, the child said, oh, yeah, it's so sad your babies died. I mean, especially since they went to hell, since you're not Christians. Ah. Maybe you're not moved by the cross because you're prejudiced against the people that at least call themselves Christians. Maybe they are Christians. They're just really sometimes dumb. I've been there. I'm not picking on anybody else. Maybe a Christian exploited you. A church offended you. Some pastor ignored you. So for one reason or another, you have turned away. You know, when I was a kid, um, my dad was the pastor, I grew up going to church, therefore, and, and uh, he would have different pastors come in. This was a popular thing years ago, decades ago. Uh, have, a, have somebody come in and preach a revival for a week. And so for five nights in a row during the weeknight, we'd have a special church service and with this special guest speaker. And I remember one particular time when that happened, Dad brought in this guy, I, I don't remember his name, but he was so negative. I mean, just full of hell and fire and brimstone and Oh, man, he was just really just, I mean, it was like steam pouring out of his head every time he was talking. And he was all about all the don'ts. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't go to movies, don't try to get rich, don't ever have premarital sex. I mean, he was so full of all this anger and negativity that when I walked out, I, I kind of wanted to do those things more than I had when I walked in. You know, I kind of, 
it was a weird deal. And I was not the only one. One of my friends turned to me and said, dang, I knew I was in trouble when I realized those are the six goals of my life. You know, like, yeah, it's not good, you know, but, you know, but I challenge you today to see beyond the imperfect, often flawed, sometimes hypocritical people who call themselves followers of Jesus. See beyond them and fix your eyes on Jesus himself. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector who heard about Jesus, heard that he was coming to his city, and Zacchaeus wanted to go see him? Unfortunately, there was a huge crowd surrounding Jesus. Zacchaeus couldn't even, couldn't even get close. And unfortunately, he being a very short guy, couldn't see over the crowd. But what did he do? Rather than get frustrated with all those selfish Christians who wouldn't let him get close, rather than that, he climbed, the Bible says, he climbed a sycamore tree so that he could get up high and see Jesus. And he did. He saw Jesus. Jesus saw him. And they went to lunch together, and his life was forever transformed or changed. And I challenge you, likewise, to get above the crowd so as to see Jesus. Don't let other people or your prejudice about other people keep you from focusing on your Savior. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us this. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Everything. That includes our prejudice against imperfect or even hypocritical Christians. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And I love this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, not the others around, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, which is all of us, by the way. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The key is to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith, not on each other. Now, there's one more hint as to why these soldiers were unmoved by the cross. Number three would be this. They were focused on material things. Material things. We see that clearly in the passage we read together. They came across the garment of Jesus that they didn't want to cut up. They didn't mind cutting up the body of this man, but they did not want to cut up this material possession that had value, that, that was something they might want it, it, he had a seamless robe, the Bible told us, an inner garment, kind of like a long t-shirt that went from his shoulders down below his knees, probably hand-woven by somebody special to him, maybe his own mother, probably at, at some substantial expense and probably over a substantial period of time. I mean, this was not just a common $5, $10 t-shirt you buy at a place like Walmart of the day. It was not that. So the soldiers said, hey, let's not cut it up. Let's cast lots, or in other words, let's gamble for it. Let's roll the dice to see who gets to have it now that he's obviously done with it. You've probably seen pictures like this. Let me show you pictures like this where Jesus is dying on the cross while the soldiers are looking down at the dice rather than looking up at the crucified Son of God. Again, they've been touching 
Jesus all day long, but not being touched in any way by him. And maybe the same reason is in play for you. Maybe the cross doesn't move you because you love the things of this world too much. You're, you've got your head down, focused on the temporary, rather than your head up, focused on the eternal. I was in church with my family years ago on vacation one time. And by the way, I hope if you ever go on vacation, which I hope you enjoy those opportunities, like spring break right now, I hope you go to church when you're on vacation, wherever you're at. But anyway, I was on vacation somewhere with my family, and some guy's cell phone rang in the middle of the sermon. He was over here. I was kind of in that general area. I thought, oh, man, he forgot to turn it off. But he just let it keep ringing and ringing and ringing. And I was like, wow. Now, I was feeling bad for this pastor who was trying to ignore it and stay focused on what he was talking about. And finally, worse than that, the guy actually answered his phone. Don't ever do that, okay? Don't ever do that. But uh, anyway, that's what he did. And, and yet, you know, I started thinking about it later. And I thought, I can't really be too hard on that guy, too critical of that guy. Because in f- similar fashion, I can sometimes let my mind wander in similar ways. I might be in the middle of a worship song. Or it might even be during communion time, which we're getting ready to enjoy together. And in the middle of that, somehow my brain just starts to go off over there. I don't know. Have you ever been there and done that? And, um, you know, maybe I see somebody in the crowd that I'm like, oh, I need to ask them about. Or, oh, I, need to, I want to make sure I welcome them. That, that's that new couple that I had invited last week or something like that. Maybe I should even invite them to lunch today. And then, oh, I better ask him about that before I do that. I've learned the hard way. Don't, don't do it without asking her first. So maybe, let's see, if I do that, maybe we could go. Oh, no, no, we went there last time. Maybe we could go. Oh, wait a minute, but what time does March Madness start today? Oh, I wonder if that place has a TV on, you know. And all of a sudden, that, it's, it's as quick as that. My brain has gone from thinking about communion to thinking about my March Madness basketball bracket. Like, oh, man, wow, how does that happen? I don't know. Does that ever happen to you? Stuff like that? I mean, sitting in church, you find yourself thinking about, I don't know, maybe the investments, dinner plans, the ball game, you know, next vacation, uh, what you're going to do that evening. If you're younger, maybe it's about that school assignment or the pretty girl sitting in the row in front of you. Or... While all the, all the while, the most important event in all of history for all of mankind, including you personally, the most important event in history gets put on the back burner of your mind. If that's you, will you join with me and ask the Lord to help you fix your eyes, as Paul tells us, or God says through Paul, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. It's one of my favorite verses because it's something I struggle with, and so I pray that all the time. And I encourage you to add that focus, that verse to your prayer and say, Lord, help me to do that. And if you, like those soldiers, have your head down today for any reason, I want to ask if you'll look up. In fact, look over there at that cross and see a Savior that died for you. And hear the words of God, also through the Apostle Paul, who said this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, for what, <clears throat> for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. 
First importance, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You know, there are a lot of important things in our lives, or at least things that seem awfully important. But what does God's Word tell us is of first importance? It is the cross that his Son, our Savior, died on for you, for me. So, can I ask you to do this? Would you stand with me right now? And as we stand together, would you look at that cross again? Fix your eyes on that cross. Even if you've heard the story a thousand times, even if you're struggling with the problem of familiarity like those soldiers, even if you've been turned off by certain Christians like my good friend, the hypocrisy or inconsistency of Christians, even if you've got a lot going on in your busy life and feel like you're just too busy, will you stare at that cross and take to heart the words of an old, old song, maybe you know it, that goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Picture him there and let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you help us to see the cross the way we should? To rather than be unmoved by it like those soldiers were and like we are at times in our life, Lord, would you help us to be moved, to be touched, to be motivated to want to love you with all we've got. Lord, if there be anybody here today who needs to accept you, maybe for the first time as their Savior and Lord, would you lay it on their heart to do just that? Maybe there are others here today who have been there, done that, and yet that light has grown dim. That passion has waned. And Lord, if that be somebody else in this room that feels that way as I have at times, Lord, would you guide us and lead us maybe to come literally up here and kneel at the foot of this cross and just beg you to brighten the light, to turn up the fire, to, to, to help us renew that passion and commitment to you. To in our own way to say thank you as we approach a time of communion in just a moment together. But Lord, as we sing this song, would you guide us and lead us to put you first in every detail of who we are and to see the cross of Jesus the way you want us to see it. And we pray in our Savior's name, your Son's name, amen.